Chapter 5 of An Angler's Hours by Hugh Tempest Sheringham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 The Fly Fisher's Aftermath. The mayfly goes out, summer comes in, and trout fishing is over. This was the strong statement made to me the other day by a friend who was somewhat disappointed at the poor results which had attended his efforts on a noted dry-fly water. I upbraided him for being a pessimist, and not a strictly truthful one to boot. But, though I would be the last to admit it to his face, I am by no means sure that there is not a good deal of justice in his observation. I am not myself so far gone in pessimism as to assert that trout-fishing is altogether over, but the hammer of adversity has impressed me with the fact that the glory of it is departed. The progress of the trout-fisher's year is not unlike that of courtship. The trout is as capricious as any maid, now hot, now cold, now kind, now disdainful never to be depended on until its capture is an accomplished fact, and, as the convenient Irishman would say, not always then, for there are such things as unfastened creels and rotten landing nets, and even unretentive hands. One might pursue the illustration a little further. Let us say that the angler has had the privilege of an introduction to the trout on some west-country stream in March. If it leads to even so much as an acquaintanceship and recollection at the next meeting, he may consider himself fortunate, for there is a certain vile east wind which commonly blows in March, and is most biting to all young things, love among the rest. However, now and then, towards the end of the month, he will find that his intimacy is progressing for even an east wind will not blow for ever, and when it is not blowing, sport is always possible. As he angles on into April, he will meet with still more success, and by the end of the month he may almost dare to call it friendship. I am not speaking of the past most miserable April, when the wind blew steadily, mercilessly, and unceasingly from the east— Footnote. Uh, this sentence was written some years ago, but it seems to have acquired some of the qualities of a permanent truth. April is a month sadly changed for the worse. End of footnote. All through May he may venture to use more and more the privileges of a friend, and on the first day of June he may seek for his opportunity. He will find it very soon afterwards, on a day when he reaches the river, and finds that the mayfly is really up, the river boiling with hungry trout, and the air alive with equally hungry swallows. The chances are that he will need no encouragement then, but if he should, let the settling of a mayfly on his nose be a signal for putting it to the issue. If after that he does not win his suit, write him down a blunderer, and unworthy to succeed. It is an open question which is the happier, the lover at the supreme moment of affirmative, or the fisherman, when he sees his mayfly taken at the first cast 
by a fish that seems to disturb the whole river by its size and eagerness. To avoid controversy, let it be said that they are equally happy. On this summit of the good things of life, however, I must pause, for the pursuance of the illustration down the other side might prove distressing to love's young dream, and I would shatter no ideals. It has, in fact, sorrowfully to be confessed, that in fishing, at least, the great too much, as Shakespeare feelingly calls it, induces satiety in the fish, if not in the man. And I have no hesitation in speaking of the mayfly as too much. Viewed from any aspect, it deserves the censure. The fish eat too much, they eat too quickly, and they are too full afterwards. Indeed, one might almost say that the angler catches too many. There is nothing in the least admirable about the pride which many men take in being able to say that on Friday last they took five dozen fish, weighing anything they care to put them at, or best omitting the weight, as Christopher North in the Noctes Ambrosianae, a hundred and thirty in one day in Loch or James, as I hope to be saved, not one of them under... Hmm and the candid shepherd puts in the details for him. A dizzen pun, and two-thirds of them a boot. All a-gither, a ton. With growing candour, he elaborates a little story for himself, wherein he figures as the captor of some sixty-three dozen trout in one day. A cartful! The kinder of folk thought it were a cartful of herrings! But this is digression. I admit that it is a pleasant thing to have a good basket of fish, but an inordinate basket does not materially add to the angler's satisfaction, and it does materially injure the stream on which he fishes. Many good fly-fishermen have a private limit of size, below which they never retain a fish, and this is an excellent method of being sure of not taking too many though for different streams it is necessary to fix a different standard. It would naturally be absurd to return everything under a pound in the West Country, for instance, where a fish of that weight is a great rarity. But in such rivers as the Kennet, a pound and a half would not be too high a limit, at any rate in the mayfly season. And, as a matter of fact, on some waters it is possible to take as many fish as one can carry with the mayfly. I have known one rod on the tame to catch over two dozen trout up to two pounds and a half, and none of them under a pound, in one day. But that is somewhat exceptional. At any rate, the fact remains that, given a good rise of the mayfly, a moderately skilful angler is practically certain to take a good basket of fish on almost any water. It is natural that, after so large a banquet as is provided for them by the short-lived insect, the trout should not feed as well as they did before it, and that the angler should consequently fare worse. And it is also natural that he should grow somewhat weary of the ill-luck which is usual in July and August. By usual, I do not mean to say invariable, for of course fish may be caught on the most hopeless days. But in these two months empty baskets are sure to be frequent, and the sport on the whole poor. 
The general fisherman will not complain at the behaviour of the trout in the dog days, for he has his bottom rod to keep him employed. And there is really no reason for the fly-fisher to complain either, for if he follows the example of his fellow-angler and directs his energies to the capture of other kinds of fish, which provide excellent sport to the fly, and are, in their several ways, just as interesting to fish for as trout. I think that angling writers have never yet done sufficient justice to the pleasure of fly-fishing for coarse fish. Many of them describe it in detail with full instructions, but they all seem to regard it as something inferior and subordinate to trout-fishing, whereas, in my opinion, it is an entirely separate branch of the art and entitled to quite as much respect. It has, moreover, the advantage of being at its best when trout-fishing is at its worst. And it has yet another advantage over trout-fishing, in that it is less practised, and yet far more easily obtained. I've often wondered why so few fly-fishermen take it seriously. There must be many busy men who, able only to take their holiday in July and August, rush away to Wales or Devonshire for fly-fishing. They get little sport, as to be expected in rivers which are probably low, and which have been fished hard and often in the spring months, and they are disappointed. Were they to apply their skill to the despised coarse fish, their sport would almost certainly be quite good enough to satisfy them. The coarse fish that take a fly best are roach, rud, dace, and chub, in an ascending scale of merit. Of the two first I will say but little. Roach take a fly as a rule in very hot weather. Oddly enough, a friend of mine once caught several roach in the Hampshire Avon with a dry fly in February and most of the remarks which I shall have to make on dace will apply to them. Rud are not very widely distributed over England, but where they are found, principally in the rivers and broads of the eastern counties, and in the tidal pools of the south coast, they give splendid sport to the fly, as they are bold risers and plucky fighters. They grow to a considerable size too, Fish of two pounds or more are not uncommon in some waters, while three-pounders are not unknown. A Norfolk rud once smashed a fly-rod for me in a way suggestive of a five-pound trout, but the scales were not warranted. Dace and chub will best repay the trouble of the fly-fisher. One or other of them is found in nearly every river in England, and in most they are both common. However, they require to be fished for in somewhat different ways, for though a chub may take a dace-fly and vice versa, it is best to aim specifically at the one or the other and to use different sorts of tackle. Dace do not grow to great size. A fish of a pound is an uncommonly large one, and though I have heard of a dace of a pound and a half, I suspend a judgment until I have actually seen them. My own aspirations, at present unrealised, do not go beyond the pound. Fish up to three-quarters of a pound, however, are fairly common in some rivers, notably the Colne, the Kennet, the Dorsetshire Stour, and some of the tributaries of the Great Ouse. 
The ham is famous among anglers, first for the size and beauty of its dace, and next because of the town to which it gives its name, though the great unthinking world would possibly reverse the order. I've also seen very large dace in the Test, the Wyle, and one or two other famous trout streams. The small size of the dace is no adequate criterion of its fighting power. In my opinion, a dace of half a pound will fight as well as a grayling of the same size, and that is as much as to say, as well as need be. Someone will no doubt hurl cotton at me here. A grayling who is one of the deadest-hearted fishes in the world, and the bigger he is, the more easily taken. This looks as if cotton had only fished for the grayling in the trout season, when it is in poor condition, though he certainly does say later that it is a winter fish. However this may be, I mean that the dace fights uncommonly well, and on fine tackle takes a good deal of landing. There is one point in connection with this fish on which most of the writers on angling seem to me to speak without unduly weighing their words. They advise the young angler to practice fly-fishing for dace as an excellent initiation into the more difficult art of trout-fishing. Here I confess myself at variance with them, for it is my experience that, whether with wet or dry fly, dace are far more difficult to catch than trout. This is due to the lightning rapidity with which they rise, seize the fly, and let it go again, and also to their too frequent habit of rising short. If a man fishes much for short-rising dace, he will find that when he turns to trout, his tendency will be to strike much too quickly. One can strike too quickly for trout, but for dace one can hardly strike quickly enough. Hence, I do not consider dace fishing as very useful practice for trout, except, of course, insofar as any sort of fly fishing teaches a man how to throw a good line. One ought perhaps to say a few words with regard to tackle. The rod which I like as well as any for dace fishing is a cheap American split cane. It throws a good enough line, is very light, and is pliant enough to obviate the natural tendency to strike too hard, which accompanies one's frantic efforts to strike instantaneously. But this is only private prejudice. As a matter of fact, any fly rod does well enough for dace, so it be very light and not too stiff. The real line should be tapered and not too heavy for the rod. With the American cane one can use a very light line, even more or less across the wind, but the essential thing in dace fishing is that the gut cast should be tapered as fine as possible. By possible, I mean as fine as the lightness of the angler's hand will permit. A man who cannot get out of the habit of striking hard loses both time and trouble in fishing too fine, as the chances are that he will find himself continuously putting on new flies in place of those he has whipped or struck off. But those who can use the finest tackle will catch most fish. With regard to flies, they must be small, but it does not very much matter what pattern one uses if the fish are rising. 
it is a mistake to carry too many varieties, as it leads to the difficulty of making up one's mind. If I were restricted to half a dozen patterns, I should choose the coachman, black gnat, wickham, red tag, brunton's fancy, and soldier palmer. But this again is only private prejudice. There are many other flies equally good. We next come to the question of where and how to fish. Dace are usually on shallows in summer, and it is there that most will be caught, but in some rivers there are few shallows and the fish are in deep water. In the latter case it is no use fishing for them unless they can be seen rising, and even then they will only take a dry fly, as a rule. On the shallows a wet fly is often as good as a dry one, sometimes better. If there is much wind it is decidedly better. Taking dace fishing all in all, however, my experience is that the dry fly proves killing to the largest fish, and is moreover easier to fish with, as a dace rises at it more visibly, and the angler stands a better chance of striking in time. Sometimes dace may be caught with the fly even in midwinter. A warm, sunny day seems to tempt them to rise, but I have only tried with dry fly then. How to use the dry fly, and the various recipes for anointing both fly and reel line to make them float, are amply set forth in many handbooks, which will give the ignorant and curious full instructions as to how to succeed both with wet and dry fly. For the former method, let the novice take note of the advice that he will there find about adding a fragment of kid glove to the tip of his fly. He will find it invaluable. There are such things as gentles, too, but they are unpleasant to handle and they whip off. Finally, in recommending the dace to the notice of fly-fishers, I cannot praise him more highly than by saying that I would as leaf fish for him in rivers where he is large and abundant, as for the trout of any mountain stream. Before beginning to speak of the chub, I will own to a further private prejudice strongly in his favour. Therefore it is pain and grief to me to read the undeserved reproaches that are cast at him by all manner of fishermen. Even that most charming writer, the amateur angler, whose nature it is to speak well of all men, fish, and things, confesses that he has never caught a chub, and, if I read aright, I do not detect in him any desire to do so. But he regards him from the point of view of the dinner-table, and that explains his attitude. Footnote. Since this was written, the amateur angler has made the chub honourable and delightful amends. End of footnote. Yet I maintain that a fish is not to be proved, basically like a mere pudding, from the eating. And even if it must be so, I would not dismiss the chub without some attempt at vindication. I remember once catching a most lovely trout, lovely as in the point of condition and colour. It was cooked. It cut a seductive pink, but its savour was of foul mud, and I had to breakfast on something else. Yet this trout lived on a shallow of the fairest gravel, and the water that rippled over it was pure crystal. 
On the other hand, I can remember eating some chub caught in a deep muddy river, which, in comparison with this deceptive trout, were delicious. To be strictly honest, I will admit that this happened on a camping-out expedition, when provisions were running low, and thus it was practically a case of chub or nothing. Even that, however, does not detract from the fact that those chub were eatable. The matter must be left there. Many a case has been ruined by over-elaboration. It is surprising what a number of angling writers appear to have one eye consistently fixed on the larder, and how few of them see anything worthy of admiration in the chub with the other eye. Some, however, have spoken well of him. Dame Juliana Burgers, for one. The Chevin, says that learned, if somewhat apocryphal lady, is a stately fish, and his head is a dainty morsel. There is no fish so strongly enamoured with scales on the body. A stately fish is the very name for him. When he comes out of the water in August, with his red fins and great silver scales deepening into golden brown on the back, he looks truly a broad, strong, stately fish. His shape is not so graceful as that of a trout, but it is suggestive of enormous strength. The difference between them is the difference between a cart-horse and a hunter. The hunter is much more active and much quicker, but the cart-horse has more pulling power. The chub may not be quite as strong as a cart-horse, but he can pull hard enough when hooked to make his capture a matter of grievous uncertainty. He grows to a considerable size. One may justly expect to catch chub of three pounds in most rivers which contain them, and one can see much bigger ones. I know several rivers where on any sunny day in August chub of four and five pounds may be seen basking on top of the water. The great ooze is full of big chub, and in the neighbourhood of St. Ives, where much of the river is free, many really large ones are caught every summer. The Thames, too, is a splendid river for them. It seems to be much better than it was, for Robert Blakey, Palmer Hackle, Esquire, who wrote in the middle of the last century, chronicled the capture of a four-pound chub in the Thames in 1844, as a remarkable occurrence. Even more remarkable, however, seems the conduct of the fish. He was a very strong, active fish, shot across the river like an arrow on feeling himself hooked, and fought well for a full hour before he could be got out of the water. He was caught with a common gut line, and therefore required considerable indulgence before he could be overcome. Considerable indulgence, indeed, an hour! A chub may be larger nowadays, but they appear to have sacrificed quality to size. But this is again digression, and by an odious comparison I run the risk of belittling a favourite fish, who is still really an excellent fighter, especially if hooked near a bed of weeds or the roots of a tree. To turn now to the tackle which is required for chub fishing with a fly, by far the best sport may be obtained with a very light rod and very fine tackle. But it is only possible to use them under certain conditions. I remember a spot on the Severn, near the small town of Tewkesbury, 
which I used to fish for many years. There is a stretch of about four hundred yards of shallow water just below the junction of a branch of the Avon with the Severn. It could not technically be described as a shallow, as it is from three to five feet deep, but it is considerably shallower than the rest of the river in that neighbourhood. In this piece of water there always used to be, and no doubt still are, great numbers of chub, which were generally on the rise. It could be fished either from the bank or from a boat, and it was possible to use very light tackle, as there were neither trees nor weeds, and playing a fish was perfectly straightforward. The chub did not run very large, but averaging from three-quarters of a pound to two pounds and a half, they gave magnificent sport on finest-drawn gut and a five-ounce rod. This would apply to any similar piece of water, but, unfortunately, such spots are rare, except on the Severn. Most rivers abound in natural obstacles, and it is necessary to use strong tackle for that reason. For general use against the chub, I should recommend the dry fly fisher's outfit, a powerful split cane rod of from ten to eleven feet, with a heavy tapered reel line forty yards in length. With this combination it is possible to cast a long line with wonderful accuracy, and also to hold a heavy fish which is trying to make for weeds or roots. The gut cast should also be tapered, but not too much, as the fly which is to be attached to it is heavy and liable to whip off. Chub do not seem to mind how thick the tackle is if the gut and fly are all that they see. With regard to flies, different rivers have their own patterns, but I know of one fly which will kill on any river, and that is Charles Kingsley's favourite, the alder. It should be dressed lake trout size, and should have a kid tail. It may be classed as another of my prejudices, if I say that a man really needs to use no other pattern. But, of course, there are other excellent flies. Big Black, Red, and Soldier Palmers, Blue Bottle, Zulu, Francis, Coachman, all kill, and kill very well. It is also worth noting that on a very rough and stormy day, Chub will sometimes take a large white moth when they will not look at anything else, and this is also the case in the rough water below a weir. All chub flies are improved by the addition of a kid tail. The tackle ready, the next point is to consider where and how to fish for chub. On a strange river, the experienced fisherman will first look for a mill pool or weir pool, next for the mouths of tributary streams, ditches and backwaters, and lastly for rows of trees along the bank. These places are the natural homes of chub, because they ensure an abundant supply of food. I myself always make for the nearest backwater in the daytime, if it is possible and permissible to fish it, and for the weir pool or mill pool in the evening. In the ordinary river it is presumed that the biggest fish of all will be in the mill pool, because of the grain and flour which come from the mill. Some mills stop working about six in the evening, and then is the time to see what a rise of chub really means. 
it is almost as exciting as a rise of trout at the mayfly but as sir edward grey says in his delightful book the look of the evening rise is alas the best part of it i do not know why it is but the millpool chub has always been to me harder to catch than the other perhaps he is too well fed however one is sure to get a few fish in any millpool when the rise is on evening fishing can be quite straightforward one puts on one or two flies and simply casts at the spot where one imagines the fish to be if one is casting on the shallows below a weir the flies may be worked salmon fashion that is to say cast straight across the river and allowed to work down and across stream if one is fishing in the open river they should be cast under the opposite bank and drawn slowly away from it very often a river must be fished from a boat but the principle is the same the fly has to move slowly across the spot where the fish are the principal difficulty in this sort of fishing is striking at the right moment it is a great mistake to strike in a hurry i know some first-rate trout fishermen who when they first fished for chub failed sadly because they struck much too quickly the stately fish requires to be treated in a stately manner and one must strike with pomp and circumstance sometimes a sort of wave may be seen following the fly this means that the chub has spied it from a distance and is coming after it it does not mean that the fish has already risen the trout fisher whose experience has taught him to strike at any movement of the water does so when he sees this wave but the chub fisher draws his fly steadily on in front of the wave until he feels or sees his line tighten then he knows that the chub has really taken the fly and that he may strike of course it sometimes happens that the fly falls just above the chub's nose and then he will rise as quickly as a trout and may be struck at once but more often he will follow it for some distance before he takes it in rough water one often sees neither wave nor rise but a little practice makes it possible to tell with certainty from the tightening of the line when a fish has taken the fly a chub will often hold an artificial fly in his mouth for a long time before he discovers his mistake so much for the straightforward method of chub fishing in the evening we now come to fishing for them in the daytime which is to my mind far more fascinating as well as more difficult the hotter and finer the day the more i am pleased and herein lies much of the fascination a real summer's day is the most perfect thing conceivable but i know of no other branch of the sport of fishing to which it is suitable on a day when cows are standing in the stream middle deep when the air is heavy with the scent of river time and vibrating with heat and the hum of bees let the angler clothe himself in grey flannel and a cricket shirt and cover his head with the broadest brimmed saddest hued hat he possesses and then make his way down to the river about ten of the clock let him take no boat 
a boat on such a day is worse than useless but let him go afoot along the river bank now he must display what powers of scouting he possesses for he must take advantage of every inch of cover that is to be found and must be ready to kneel and crawl and even go like the serpent of scripture in small rivers there is usually plenty of cover in the shape of bushes and in large ones there are often fringes of rushes and reeds behind which a man may stand seeing and yet unseen let us suppose that the angler has found his bit of cover and is standing behind a clump of reeds which come about up to his chin his first action is to peer very carefully over them he sees that there is a sort of still pool just at his feet formed by a surrounding belt of weeds if the chub in the river are at all right-minded there will be a fish of size and importance basking on the surface of that little pool just as surely as i am writing these words having seen his chub it becomes somewhat a matter of chance if the chub has not seen his head if he can flick his fly just in front of its nose if it does not see his rod as he does so if he hooks it when it rises as granting the other contingencies it certainly will and if when he has hooked it he can keep it out of the weeds and land it through the reeds that chub is his but it sounds easier than it is as a rule the chub will see his head or his rod and will disappear at once very often the angler will strike too quickly and jerk the fly out of its mouth for it is a thing to test the strongest nerves to watch a big fish taking a fly and to make sure of not missing it through excitement then again beds of reeds or rushes are excellent cover but they are bad landing stages i have often had to put my whole trust in providence grasp the line and pull it is worth remembering that a line will in an emergency stand an immense strain if it will not it is a bad line and not to be fished with of course the chub will not always be lying under the angler's own bank very often he will see a dark shape lying in the middle of the river or under the opposite bank the farther away the fish is the easier it is to approach it sometimes it is lying very far off indeed in fact out of reach of the ordinary cast it can then be sometimes reached by what is called shooting the line that is to say by getting out as much as one can in the ordinary way then keeping an extra yard or two of slack line in the left hand which is released when the line is nearly extended it is possible to cast several yards more in this manner the angler will thus work his way along the bank stalking every fish he sees and catching one here and there by being subtle as the serpent and working very hard there is no reason why he should not get several brace of big fish and that on a hot august day ought to satisfy any one i remember once filling a big creel as full as it would hold on such a day in a little backwater about a mile long in size it was no more than a brook 
but every hole displayed two or three chub lying on the surface. The backwater possessed an invaluable series of bushes along its banks, and by creeping from bush to bush I could catch a chub in every few yards. The fish fought as well as trout, and I got broken up several times by their getting round stumps and under roots. I've never enjoyed a day more. Oddly enough, though I have fished that backwater several times since, I have hardly caught anything there, which is probably due to the fact that I have never been fortunate enough to go there on a really hot day. This, among other reasons, has brought me to the conclusion that the hotter the weather, the better it is for stalking chub. This mode of fishing naturally recalls the methods of dry-fly fishing for trout. It is not necessary to fish so fine, and it does not much matter whether the fly be dry or wet. Sometimes the dry-fly works wonders with chub, but as a rule they will take the wet fly equally well, but it is even more difficult to stalk a chub than a trout, and the fish caught are on the whole larger. Add to this that chub may be taken readily on a day when trout would not look at anything, and here is a branch of sport ready to one's hand, which it is impossible to despise. The ordinary evening fishing for chub from a boat, when all one has to do is to hook and play the fish, is easy enough. But to catch them in the way described, in clear water, under a broiling sun, requires quite as much skill as any form of fishing, and the man who catches his five brace may justifiably take pride in his achievement. I commend the sport to any brother anglers who have not yet tried it, and if their success be proportionate to my good wishes, they will not complain. End of chapter 5